Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today's episode is a little more than an hour-long excerpt from a three-and-a-half-hour-long discussion on Hamlet that I had on Twitter X. You can follow me on Twitter X at AstralFlight. That's at A-S-T-R-A-L-F-L-I-T-E. And you can join in on these conversations. Most of these podcasts are now originally recorded as Twitter spaces. I like to give about an hour-long presentation, and then I have my guests come in, and we have uh, speakers from the audience come in. So now on iTunes and Spotify, I upload the first hour with my commentary and sometimes some commentary from my guests, and then the rest is either on my Substack for free or behind a paywall. This episode will be paywalled, and there's about another two-hour discussion on uh, Hamlet as well as drama and literature in general. So I recommend you go over to my Astroflight Substack, which is astroflight.substack.com. The link will be in the show notes. Become a paid subscriber. There's more and more paid content uploaded every single month, and there's hours of discussion that you can't get on iTunes or Spotify. So I hope to see you there. The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shibats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we discover a building god. For the sake of having no silence, I will start, I guess. So, the question is, let me give a little background, and then I'll give the real question. The, the background is that Herodotian was claiming that... Um, the conflict in the play, right? The central theme, which is also the conflict, was caused by the tension between Christianity and Christian values and paganism and pagan values. And I argued that that probably wasn't the case, depending on what he meant, because there's uh, Danish paganism, which is pre-Christian Danish paganism, and there's ancient paganism, which I hadn't actually considered at first, the ancient paganism. Uh, and he's not here to argue his case, although I know Athenian can kind of lend, lend something to this argument because he's familiar with it. But I said that didn't make sense because uh, Hamlet was performed in, I believe, 1601 or finished in 1601. It was performed in the very beginning of the 17th century to an audience that hadn't been pagan for 500 years. Um, And not only that, but it was an audience that was grappling with Protestantism. Uh, Protestantism was brand new and it was causing many problems in Europe and England in particular. And Elizabethan England is in many ways defined by the Protestant Reformation. All, All of Europe really at the time was defined by the Protestant Reformation. So my question was, why the hell would Shakespeare write a, write a play whose central conflict in this most conflicted of all characters, perhaps in all of literature, is between paganism and Christianity when the audience and the contemporary world was grappling with the massive upheaval of Protestantism versus, versus Catholicism? 
We also got into a heated debate about the uh, dating of the play. When did the t- play take place? Um, now, this, this debate was resolved uh, in my favor, as was the other debate, by the way. But I'm not going to dance on the grave of my interlocutor until he shows up. But uh, uh, through investigating this question, through asking if this is a, is a worthwhile question and um, if this is the central conflict of the play, I had to sort of like remap the entire play to see if my initial read of the play bore out. And I had to ask these central questions about my initial read of the play. And I basically circled back around to my original take on the play, and I believe it's borne out by the text. So what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to present um, the question of the central theme and the source of tragedy. And I believe the conflict in the play is also the central theme of the play. I'm not 100% certain you can nail the theme down or even the conflict down to just one simple term or two conflicting terms like paganism versus Christianity. However, in so doing, it's become clear that uh, paganism for various reasons is a theme that runs through this play quite strongly. However, my argument is that it's not the central theme. and It's not the central conflict. So the two questions, the first is, um, what is the source of tragedy? Is the source of tragedy a character flaw within Hamlet himself that the tragedy arises from? Does the tragedy follow his tragic flaw? Does he have a tragic flaw that initiates the events? Uh, Because this play is very much a cascade of events that lead to greater and greater tragedy. And the tragedy is multifaceted it's 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 a tragedy because many people die that don't need to die it's a tragedy because uh hamlet isolates himself and uh it's a tragedy because of what's going on with his father and the ghost and his mother so is hamlet beset by a tragic fate that he's helpless against is there's nothing he can do uh is he simply on a course for tragedy because of circumstances beyond his control Or could he have acted in such a way that he could have uh, offset the tragedy and he could have prevented the tragedy? In in which case, the whole thing would be his fault. And it does look like the whole thing is his fault. Um, But you can't just assume that. You have to go through and figure it out. You have to go through and prove it by the text because these are are big questions that even Aristotle himself asked. you know, and people at different times in history believe different things. They believe that your, uh, I was going to say personality, but it like your actions don't actually affect your fate, that you're fated to what you're fated to, regardless of what you do. And you're sort of batted about and as the plaything of the gods, or God in this case, because it's uh, Christian Europe. The other thing is the central theme. And I think in this play, the central theme is also the central conflict. And I assume, I'd like to hear this from the other speakers, that if you were to take a census of people to ask them if you could boil the 
the theme down to one word, I suspect they, the word you might hear the most is revenge. Is the central theme Hamlet taking revenge for his father. So the conflict then would be the conflict within himself on how to go about taking his revenge. How should he take his revenge? And this causes great agony, great agonizing by Hamlet. That's why he talks so much. Most of many, well, two of his, his two major soliloquies are about him agonizing over this. And then uh, his third soliloquy is him like stealing himself to make himself go do it, to, to, to make himself go like fulfill his destiny of revenge, of course. But there are many, many, many questions here with revenge. So the first question is, does he actually want revenge for his father? Or does he feel compelled towards revenge by the ghost of his father? Does he want revenge because his crown was unjustly taken for him from him? Or does he want revenge because his father was killed and his mother was made into a whore by his uncle? The next conflict is in taking his revenge, why does he act the way he does? And this brings up much deeper conflicts within the play. Because he spends a lot of time making excuses for how to take his revenge and why he's taking his revenge the way that he is. So you have to ask yourself, why is he agonizing over this? Why is he agonizing over the way he takes his revenge? Is it because he doesn't really want to take revenge or is he just a coward? Does he feel compelled to take revenge? In which case it would seem like his fate is out of his hands or does he really want revenge, but he's a coward and he kind of puts off the act of revenge because he's, he's scared. And what is he scared of? Well, might be a harder question to answer than it appears, but the reason he gives for uh, being a coward, if he is a coward, is because he doesn't want to go to hell. Uh, but I don't know if it's that simple. I, I, I think that's an excuse. I've come to that conclusion, that that's an excuse. Uh, and he, But I don't know what his motivations are. I don't know why he wants to take revenge. And I, uh, why he, excuse me, demurs in taking revenge. So the question is, uh, does he not want to be the king? Is that what it is? Does he, does he not want to be the king? And he doesn't want the responsibility of being the king? And that's why he doesn't want to kill him? Is he really just like a theater kid? Is that why he goes through the grand, elaborate uh, concoction of... And this is the question here, right? He goes through this grand, elaborate, concocted play that he sets up. And he uh, uses this as a way to, like, reveal Claudius's guilt, right? But is he just, like, fiddle-fucking around? Because uh, he's really just a theater kid? And the thing you have to understand, and this is uh, another theme in the background here, is that this play comes during a great time of transition. It is the Protestant Reformation, but it's also the transition from the medieval world to the early modern world, where England and Denmark were entering into uh, their imperial phase, that these uh, 
states that were kingdoms that were firmly Catholic and firmly Christendom and firmly independent from each other and firmly localized after 1066. That's when all this happens. They become fixed states with hereditary monarchies that were Catholic and uh, a long set of traditions that grew out of pre-Christian paganism established themselves and reigned in Europe for 500 years. And now all of a sudden, they're becoming maritime empires overseas. There's massive amounts of trade. Uh, warfare is changing. They're becoming empires. They're getting rich overseas, and they're starting to come in conflict with each other in totally different ways. You see this played out with Fordenbras marching uh, through Denmark with his Norwegian army to attack Poland. So now the court is made up of like uh, powdered-wristed, uh, highly educated aristocrats who've never seen a day in battle, whereas their predecessors were hardened uh, war veterans who made their name and made their way through war making. So this conflict is, uh, is shown in stark detail. The contrast is shown starkly between Hamlet and King Hamlet, his father, how much of a lesser man he is than him. And his father, remember, killed someone uh, in a duel prior to the events of this, which was Fordenbras' father. And then Hamlet is also contrasted with Fordenbras, who uh, is a martial military leader who comes and takes over at the end of the play. Well, Hamlet studied at Wittenberg, which is very, very consequential, because that is also where Martin Luther lectured. And so he comes back from studying abroad like a, a pampered rich kid who's never gone to battle. He gets in a duel at the end because he's practiced in the art of fencing, which is a highly stylized uh, court sort of art form, really. It's a martial art form where you could be killed. But it's not the same thing as a knight on horseback training in the yard every morning uh, to go and be in a shield wall or to go charge the enemy's line uh, in a real battle. It's a totally different thing. At the same time, we hear talk about Claudius having mercenaries, right? Whereas before, it was your landed knights were your army. So we have this like highly uh, sophisticated economic empire. We, we have this traditional society of martial men who were uh, practicing warfare and who made their name in warfare and who maintained their kingdoms through warfare and 500 years of tradition, giving way to what's known as Renaissance humanism, which is basically like philosophy and education that arose through the university system that, uh, of course, uh, Martin Luther was part of. And they began to question the traditions, and they began to question uh, faith. And they began to question religion. And Protestantism is very much about having your own personal interpretation right, of scripture. So the question I have to ask is, does Hamlet just not want to be the king? Does he just want to go off and have his life like fencing and being an actor and learning philosophy? Uh, now, this is all very important because one of the things Renaissance humanism taught was that your education, your, your understanding, your knowledge, your studies reason you you learn highly sophisticated uh uh 
You learn how to reason in a highly sophisticated way. It's supposed to be in service to faith. It's supposed to be in service to salvation later. That you you use your reason to sort of bolster your faith. But they always they always argued, you know, some of the thinkers of the time would argue that if you reason your way into faith, uh, you're you're actually at risk of succumbing to pride because you feel like you did it yourself. And this pride manifests itself in wanting your own destiny, wanting to make your own way in life. And in the world of tradition, this is simply not how things are done. If your father, the king, and you were supposed to be the king next, is murdered by someone, your duty is to go and take revenge because it's your duty as a son, and it's also your duty as royalty to take revenge and put the rightful person on the throne. And Hamlet sure does not seem like he feels this way about, about it at all. It doesn't feel like he's impelled to do this. Uh, there's, a, there's a soliloquy that William will read for us shortly in which he refers to his uh, revenge as himself, his passion for revenge, he refers to himself as being unpregnant. He's not bearing this passion for this revenge. Uh, and all through the play, well, in this one soliloquy in particular, he is constantly berating himself for not acting, right? He's constantly berating himself for saying that, like, he's overthinking it and using so many words. And this is kind of where I'll, I'll come to my conclusion here, my conclusion of the conflict and my argument that Hamlet, it's Hamlet's character flaw that sets the tragic events in motion. I think his tragic I think his tragic flaw causes him to wait too long to try to kill Claudius and he ends up killing Polonius which sets which sets the ball in motion for the cascade of events that lead to the tragedy at the end. He meets the he meets the ghost. The ghost tells him to go and kill uh take revenge for himself, right? Instead of so the question is right so how 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 should Hamlet do that how should Hamlet do that well you could say maybe this is nowhere in the play but you could say maybe what he would do is declare it loudly in front of Claudius in front of the court with sword in hand and say I know you killed my father you usurped the throne you stole my mother's hand in marriage you are you are an illegitimate king and I'm here to claim uh, I'm here to claim my throne I'm here to claim my crown and I challenge you to a duel. That would be the manly thing to do. But Hamlet says that he has to prove to himself that the ghost was not a devil. Now, here's something interesting. The ghost says he's in purgatory. The Catholic faith, which is the earlier faith I argued about earlier, believed that there was such a thing as purgatory and that what happens in purgatory is your chance to go to heaven. Uh, but if you don't, if, if things don't go your way, you'll end up in hell. So one of the things he needs to get out of purgatory and go to heaven is to have Hamlet take revenge for him. But Protestant doctrine says that uh, most ghosts are actually devils coming to trick you. And just as a quick side note, humanism actually says, Renaissance humanism argues that there are no such thing as ghosts and you're just insane if you see one. And that's a theme here because Hamlet mocks and perhaps even eventually goes insane, right? 
So he's giving this soliloquy that we're going to hear shortly in which he says, uh, I have to prove to myself that this was not a devil. And the way I can prove to myself that this is not a devil is I will put on this elaborate play and I'll write, he writes 16 lines into the play that aren't part of the original play that will describe the deed and the crime of Claudius. And he'll watch Claudius's face. And if Claudius reveals to him in any way that he feels guilty while he's watching it, then he'll know that the ghost was telling the truth, Claudius killed him, and that it's his duty to go and take revenge. But I have decided that this is all bullshit, and he just he's just telling himself this because he doesn't really want to do it. I don't know why he doesn't really want to do it. The only argument I could come up with is he doesn't, he's either a coward or he doesn't want the, the crown. He doesn't want to be the king. So he comes up with this whole thing, and while he's speaking the soliloquy, he's admonishing himself greatly because he says a braver man would have killed Claudius, and a, a man impassioned by revenge, which he's unpregnant with, would have killed Claudius and left his body out to be eaten by carrion. While he instead puts on an act, he puts on a play, uh, and he's like, he likens himself to a coward and a whore. And a male whore. He calls himself a man whore. Because uh, he's satiating his heart with all these words, with all these excuses. So my first argument is that if he really wanted to take revenge, and he was really gripped by passion, and he really felt it was his duty, because my argument is he doesn't feel like it's his duty anymore. He feels like he has to do it because the ghost commanded him to. He doesn't really want to do it. If it was really his duty, he would have done what I said and challenged uh, Claudius right away. Or the other thing he would have done, I think. When he finds Claudius in prayer, it seems like the perfect setup. Claudius is praying and confessing the crime. So here he has caught him in the act and he goes to kill him. But then he says to himself, wait, if I kill him now, he's going to go to heaven while my father is still in purgatory. And that's not even really revenge. Which makes sense. This is a strong argument, and it, it kind of had me doubting my read of the play for a little while. But then you ask yourself, well, why didn't he just follow him away from the prayer to wherever he was going next and confront him right away? Why did he run to his mother's bedchamber and like basically cry to her and then accidentally kill Polonius? I considered the possibility that perhaps he stole away to the bedchamber hoping that perhaps Claudius was going to show up there. And when it was Polonius, he didn't realize he thought it was Claudius. That's actually how the play was taught to me in college as an undergrad, that he uh, thought it, it was Claudius and killed him and it was an accident. But I don't know. I went over the play a few times and it doesn't look like that's what happened. He was talking about going to see his mother earlier. So I think he was already planning to do this. But either way, you know, I don't know why he wouldn't have followed Claudius away. But the other question you have to ask yourself is someone like King Hamlet, would an earlier man that I was talking about, that I was contrasting him with, would they have demurred while he was in prayer? I don't know. But the argument is that Hamlet wouldn't even have known this if he didn't go study and learn, you know, Protestant, excuse me, Renaissance humanism at Wittenberg. He wouldn't even have been aware of the fact that there was all of this, uh, you know, there's all these contingencies that if you kill someone while they're in prayer, they go, they go to, uh, this is like, this is like doctrine. This is like, uh, this is like theology. 
that I assume your average unlearned person wouldn't know. So, you know, an essay that I read about this play is called Hamlet and the Burden of Knowledge. And then uh, Nietzsche in in um, The Birth of Tragedy makes the same argument that this Burden of Knowledge essay makes, which is that basically Hamlet is stymied by knowing all this stuff, by having all this stuff in his head, by all the things that he learned, makes him question and play all these things out. So reason doesn't actually bring him to, like, action. It, it just causes him to delay, and it causes him to demur, and it causes him to second-guess everything and question everything and overthink everything. And what Nietzsche says is that Hamlet's understanding of the situation in the detail, in the learned, this is key, that he went to college to learn these things, prevented him from acting out of his instinct, it clouded over his instinct. His instinct should have been to instantly take revenge and, and, and revenge for his father. But his understanding allows him in that moment to play everything out the way it could go all the way to the end. And he's paralyzed by this. He's paralyzed by this. So he, he comes up with all these elaborate, you know, grand schemes of putting on a play or not killing his father, while uh, his uncle, while he's in prayer. Um... If he had confronted Claudius, if he hadn't put on this play, if he had killed him in the uh, in the confessional, the further tragedy never would have happened. And we don't know if perhaps maybe Fortinbras never would have even taken over Denmark. I don't know if you can make this argument. It's not what I want to get bogged down in. The only thing you can say is that the uh, events of the play would have turned out much, much differently. So my argument, again, is that it's Hamlet's character flaw uh, that causes the tragedy, that he should have acted right away. Now, before we open up to discussion, I want William, I hope he has the soliloquy queued up, to read the soliloquy. The reason I picked this of the whole thing in the play, uh, the only real p passage that I want us to read uh, at, at any length is because this is the soliloquy that convinced me that Hamlet was making excuses the whole time, and he was conscientious of the fact that he was hesitating. And he was conscientious the whole time of the fact that he was ag agonizing over this, and then he's telling us, he's telling us directly that this isn't happening, he's not committing the murder because he's afraid, because he's a coward, because he's overthinking it, because he's like, caught up in acting uh, and not in doing. Um, this is where he gives it away because he sets everything in motion. This is the, this is the moment where he decides to put on this play. Uh, this is the moment where he starts to question the ghost, where he starts to ask, was the ghost really my father's soul or was he a, a devil come to trick me? And I think the whole argument turns on this soliloquy and the later soliloquy, which is arguably the more famous one of the to be or not to be, I think is the next step down his pathway of agonizing over this. He's like contemplating suicide and he talks him out of suicide self out of suicide for the same reason he ends up talking himself out of killing Claudius. He doesn't want to go to hell. He, he's afraid of death. That's what he's saying. He's saying he's afraid of death. Uh, I don't know if you could say that Fortinbras, who marches into battle, and King Hamlet were afraid of death. 
because uh, that was part of their life. But Hamlet never had to confront it before, and now he does. And he's um, he's sidestepping it, he's circumventing it, he's trying to find excuses, and um, as we know, it leads to it that causes the tragedy in the play. So the last thing I'll say is that you could have argued that it's actually his tragic fate and that he's being trapped in uh, events that are beyond his control. And you could argue that by saying that the actual, the murder of his father at, at all is, is the tragic fate and sets the tragic fate in motion that he's being trapped in and that he does have choices later, but they're, they're choices that are like, derivative of his tragic fate and therefore he's trapped and he has no good choices because we have to ask ourselves is doing what i said he could have done which was confront claudius and killing him is that the better choice well i think you're forced to say yes it's the better choice because you see the results of his choices so it seems as if he had chosen a different course perhaps it would not have turned out so tragically so I believe that the central conflict of the play is uh, thought versus action, which is uh, the, the Catholic way of life, the Catholic tradition versus the Protestant early modern tradition, which is of education and learning and reason. Whereas the Catholic tradition, the earlier medieval tradition, we should probably call it the medieval tradition, uh, was more in tune with pagan virtue, pagan virtue being uh, martial ability, acting on instinct, not thinking things through, confronting death, uh, being a warrior, things like that. So if William can read us this soliloquy, let's keep in mind that I think this is where Hamlet gives up the game. This is where Hamlet reveals that uh, he's being... He's, he's being tormented and he's agonizing over the p condition that he's in. And I think he makes the wrong choice. Go ahead, William. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage waned, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit. And all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I had? He would drown the stage with tears, and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy-meddled rascal, peak like John of Dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing. No, not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life a damn defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie in the throat, 
as deep as to the lungs. Who does me this? Ha. Swoons I should take it, for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful. Bloody, bawdy villain! Remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain! Oh, vengeance! Why, what an ass am I, this most brave that I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words and fall a-cursing like a very drab, a scullion! Fee upon it! Fall about my brain! I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have, by the very cunning of the scene, been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tent him to the quick. If he but blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be the devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. So there we have it. He says right in there, if I wasn't such a coward, I would have just killed him. And the, the, he says kites would have feasted upon his offal. The, the, the ravens would be eating his guts, but instead I'm a whore. <laughs> I have a pigeon's liver, or I have the gall of a pigeon. It means he's a coward. So he's not psyching himself up to go kill his uncle. He does that later when Fortinbras is marching across Denmark. He, he gives this rousing speech. But it's too late by that point. It's too late. He turns into this dashing, you know, swashbuckling guy who jumps from one ship to a pirate ship and sends his uh, captors off to be executed. And he comes back and has a duel with Laertes, but it's all too late. So what I'd like to do is ask Athenian and Bolingbroke and Catherine, in whichever order you'd like. In fact, you can put your hands up. What I'd like you to do is either respond to me and bolster my argument, argue against it, or present your own uh, perspective on the character flaw versus the tragic fate and the central theme and the central conflict of the play. So because it's such a panel... I don't usually go for hands. It's usually a discussion with one person. Um, I'd like to see a hand go up, though, because I'm ready to let someone else talk. Go ahead, TR. Right. <clears throat> Evening, and thanks for putting this together, Astral. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right on the money about uh, it. this being a Catholic versus Protestant theology debate. Uh, if, and I, I put this in this uh, group chat uh, that, that you set up for us. But basically, if, if Hamlet were a Catholic, he would just act and then ask for forgiveness uh, from the authority of the church. But because he studied, because he's learned, because he has the burden of knowing God, and, he had, and he's taken on the responsibility of 
of theology, he's no longer trapped by fate, but trapped by that knowledge. Okay, this is a great contribution. This is exactly right. This is exactly how the knights and the aristocrats, who, I have to reiterate, were uh, participated in violence all the time. That's exactly how they act, acted. They would commit violence, and then they would ask for forgiveness. And of course, a lot of that came uh, came out as paying indulgences to the church, and that's one of the ways the church got so rich. Uh, that's exactly right. That's exactly the problem. So I saw Athenian's hand go up, but then he put it back down. So if Athenian wants to go first, go ahead. If not, William has his hand up. All right. We'll let William go. Athenian, put your hand back up. <laughs> um, yes, I just wanted to... Um, I like your argument, uh, Astro. I think, you know, one way of thinking of it is um, the conflict between uh, Hamlet, the, the human being, and Hamlet, the prince. And, um, uh, you know, it, that's sort of what you're talking about is whether or not he you know, the, whether or not he actually desires in his, in his personhood to uh, carry out his duties as prince and sort of this, uh, you know, the neatness of the sort of medieval categorizations of society being uh, rendered asunder by, um, by, yeah, this like humanism where like individualism takes precedence. Um, and yes, I think, uh, you know, my, my read of Hamlet you know uh, the 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 scene where he uh, he runs to his mommy's room um, is perhaps uh, the best evocation of this, where um, you know he he's sort of just like a a, a man child. Uh, he's still he's he only is ever friends with like his childhood buddies and his like college drinking friends who betray him, uh, and you know Horatio his like childhood friend, and uh, he has this long. Uh, uh, you know, elegy for the clown, the jester that he liked when he was a boy at the end. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, it, it, it's this, I think, um, the, uh, the, 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 the Hamlet, the, the, the man, Hamlet, the, the, the human being um, is, 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 is rent from, you know, his, his office uh, of, of being the prince. And this is sort of a, um, you know, a metaphor for, for Europe in general. Um, and, and, you know, this is done by the hand of, uh, of Wittenberg, you know, uh, everything that's coming out of Wittenberg. So um, I don't have that much more to add, but I thought it might be clarifying to uh, put it in those terms. And I'm no, that's, that's good. We'll get back to that. Um, Hamlet, the man versus Hamlet, the prince, is he taking revenge because his father was killed or because the king was killed? Uh, so let's have uh, Athenian go and then Catherine, and then Bolingbroke. Yeah, I, um, so I, I originally was also in the camp of the, the tension between the, the pagan virtues and the Christian virtues. Um, one of the, one of the reasons though, is because the, the that was the problem with the Renaissance was that this, this rediscovery of uh, Plato and just the, the overwhelming influence that Greek philosophy was having at the time. And it does, it does seem to be that, I mean, you can make a case that that's certainly a theme there. I mean, I, I, I think it's certainly a theme there. Now, if it's the principal theme, that, that's, a different, that's a different thing to, to do. Um, but I, I think it, so very much of this does come back around to the fact that Hamlet uh, 
had been educated at Wittenberg. And so you're going to have this constellation of problems that are going to arise because of this. Uh, you've got, obviously, the, the issues with Catholicism and Protestantism. You've, you've got what I would suggest is the, the sort of the issues of the question of virtue and everything with the study of the, the Greek philosophy as well. But another thing going on here is that, and, and this is where I've sort of become fascinated with just one, one small minutia of the play that ends up being the kind of lens that I've been understanding the whole play through lately is that it, it turns out that it, so, so there's a very, very close association between the, the Copernican understanding of, of the solar system and the Ptolemaic understanding that's affiliated with Wittenberg in, in the 16th century at that time. And that it, it goes all the way back to those, the only two Danish names in the whole play. And so, so I think you also have that going on. And so all of these things come together in a kind of perfect storm to make Hamlet just a very, very bad, heir to the throne precisely because of the the education he's received i mean it, it, he's he's the it, he he would seem to be shakespeare's example of why you don't want a philosopher king um because they're just going to theorize in their mind all these these things they're going to delay and just just the the very idea that he's going to catch the conscience of a king by watching a play uh, only an academic would think that that's going to solve their their issues, um, or that that's going to have any effect on people. That's like that's the equivalent of getting on uh, Twitter and calling people hypocrites. Uh, that, that's that's really what it comes down to. It does it does nothing. People laugh at you because of it. Um, but but also um, the one thing that 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 gets really interesting too, though, about the suicide. The, the to be or not to be thing, and and this this goes back to sort of the point I was making about just his education. He doesn't. He's he he has a he's in a horrible situation, right? I mean, my God, the, the guy's father was murdered. Uh, his uncle uh, is sleeping with his mom. I mean, she, it, it's 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 a mess, right? Uh, he was skipped over as rightful heir in the process, and when he's thinking about suicide he turns it not into what we would normally expect as most people would make it all about themselves. Like, woe is me, woe is me. And there is an element of that there with Hamlet, but he turns it into, in many respects, what one would think of as kind of the philosopher's plight. Uh, when he says, uh, the time is out of joint or cursed spite that ever I were born to set it right. That's making it into a cosmic element right i mean he's he's placed himself at the highest possible level his entire birth uh was was aiming towards solving this situation that's and again this is a kind of theory selling sort of thing i mean he's and, and this this does get back i think um to a lot of the 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 relevance of nietzsche there because um, Hamlet seems to be the one who's echoing the wisdom of Silenus, right? Better to not be born at all than to than to be born, uh, and so that's that's sort of this this weight that he's carrying around with him. 
but again, uh, there's uh, uh, for me, it's difficult now to, to boil it down to one thing uh, because I think they're just all coming together. Um, but but I, I would just I would just say just one last thing, uh, and then I'll uh, then I'll, I'll finally shut up. Um, I think that one of the most helpful ways to understand a lot of what's going on and this is also sort of another revelation I've had where I, I don't like to historicize things. I don't like to place them uh, in any kind of historical context because it's very possible that the author uh, has in mind universal things, right? Uh, that whatever's going on at the time, uh, he's just using those as, as particulars to draw out greater universals about the human condition. I think that's what's going on here. Um, and Hamlet. And when he says, what he says about the play, uh, he says the purpose of the plane, right? The whole point of the plane, he says, is to hold as toward the mirror up to nature. Now, that motif is going to be crucial in Bacon and Nietzsche. They're both going to explicitly say that about the human mind. But then he goes on to say further, he says, he says, to hold up to nature and he says to show he says the very age and body of the time his form and pressure and so i think what's going on here particularly as we weave back and forth between like 11th century denmark uh and 16th century england is this mirror that he's going to hold up is to show as he says the form and the pressure uh, of the time and, and what is the pressure of the time uh, well certainly it's going to be those elements that that we mentioned there the pressure the tension uh, that that man as such is in the middle of facing which is to say as you were mentioning uh, Protestantism versus Catholicism uh, also uh, this resurgence of how do you fit the virtue of magnanimity right uh, into a Christian, a Christian element, right? How, how does one do that? Uh, and then also uh, this, the, the Copernican <laughs> revolution that's going on, which uh, I just want to, I, I, I can't even, that, that's going to take us down a rabbit hole, but my God, it, it gets so absolutely fucking fascinating. And I'm, I'm convinced that that's why he sets the whole thing, even in Denmark, uh, because the, it's the physicist Tycho Brahe uh, who has this relationship going on with Wittenberg uh, at the time. Uh, but anyway, I'll just leave it at that. So. Well, this is exactly what Nietzsche's whole argument is, is, his whole point. He makes it very concisely. Everything Athenian is talking about. Hamlet is aware, because of his education, about all of this extraneous stuff that Athenian is talking about. And it distracts him from the, the singular purpose. And it takes him out of the moment. And it takes him out of the flow of time. And uh, puts him in his head. And he's contemplating all these things. He, there's even some quote, I think, where he's talking to the ghost or right before he talks to the ghost. And he says something about things that lie beyond the, you know, the realm of human knowledge or something like that or beyond our understanding. Instead of being uh, totally uh, sort of encompassed by his duty and his passion and being captured by it and borne along by that and acting with singular focus he is off on a million other things. And um, I want to ask the question, of: is it because he's a coward? Is it because he's pampered? Is it because he was raised in the court? Uh, 
or is there some other reason for it or is it just a literary a, a literary device Shakespeare uses uh, I don't know Catherine had her hand up I think she beat Bolinbrook um, so we're Catherine if you're still uh, interested please I, I I look forward to your contribution yeah thank you so much this was excellent um, I just had a few thoughts and maybe some things that we can pick up further in the discussion but I agree with you that this theological uncertainty is a sort of important backdrop to the play. And I want to stick on this moment, or I want to bring up this moment that I think is just fascinating. I brought it up in the group chat, but it's this moment where um, Gertrude has this passing remark that Hamlet seems upset. And he kind of fixes on that phrase seems. He says, I know not seems. Um, that is, he believes his demeanor is in perfect correspondence with his inner state. And he's kind of perturbed by the fact that there could be a discrepancy. Um, and of course, that discrepancy between inner state and appearance is exactly what he believes Claudius and Gertrude are sort of guilty of this sort of deception. Um, so he, he he's perturbed by this discrepancy. And your comments sort of bring up how Christian theology almost intensifies this gap between uh, will and external action. Um, in that famous soliloquy, he has that note about conscience makes cowards of, of us all. It renders us passive. Um, there's that line, let me find it. The native hue of resolution is sicklied over with a pale cast of thought. Um, that is thinking uh, forecloses the possibility of action. And um, we'll remember like when his father, when he originally uh, sees his father is, uh, as a ghost, his father explicitly warns him of that. He warns him that he has to remember this sort of singular purpose that you uh, mentioned. Um, uh, let me see. It says... Well, and, and the second time, the, if I may, sorry. Yeah. The second time... No, this is exactly right. You're exactly right. The second time the ghost shows up, he says, I'm here to wet your uh, blunted purpose. Yes. Yes, exactly. And he warns him about uh, the to, the task of memory must hold a seat in this distracted globe. So I think one of you was mentioning uh, Hamlet's distraction as sort of philosophical uh, distraction with this sort of uncertainty um, and this gap between thought and action. And one thing that I kind of want to bring up is you had this interesting con um, contrast between acting and what was the other term it was acting and doing or something well one um, of the things i said came from that essay uh, uh oh, okay yes because there's the theme of here mute real quick there's the theme of gnosis versus praxis which is knowing versus acting but then there's also the theme of um hamlet sort of the mirror up to nature right he's putting He's putting this act in between himself and experience. He's putting the play and acting in between uh, his immediate like action. Uh, so he's like taking on the role of an actor who's like mimicking the action, and he's using it as a way to delay. I'm not sure if that's what you're bringing up, but uh... yes, no, that was exactly because one thing that I could propose tentatively is that lacking this ability to sort of act instinctively act you know without forethought without guilt or premeditation um we're kind of left with theatricality as the strategy so claudius has that famous line our bait of falsehood takes this carp of truth you know he is the sort of master of meddling and of course that does not end well for him and the play is centered around this play within a play and um 
his strategy uh, lacking this sort of determinative, uh, this determined action becomes something else, something theatrical. You put it much better with this uh, play being a sort of mediation rather than direct action. So that's just something I would oppose to you guys. I'm curious about that strand of th theatricality that's taken up in the play. Well, I, I think that's a huge part of why Shakespeare puts this in there. I think that is. Yeah. And the, the, the soliloquy will read, I mean, Hamlet basically tells us this. Uh, hang on, Will. I, I see your hand, but we have Bolingbrook and Bones before. And uh, I just think quick, a very quick. Well, yeah, if you want a quick, go ahead, jump, yeah, jump in just, real quick. About, Interjections are always welcome. About the soliloquy, you know, what he's expressing is this jealousness of the actor. I don't know if we have enough context to all the listeners who aren't as familiar with the play. He's getting re he, he This theater troupe comes to the court. And uh, he, they're his friends. He, I think he was maybe in the theater troupe or something. And uh, he's so excited to see them. He's a, he's a theater kid. He's a word cell. Um, and he, then he gets this idea that, you were t that uh, Athenian was talking about to um, confirm uh, his uncle's guilt by looking at his face while he uh, sort of reenacts uh, his father's murder, uh, which is obviously ridiculous. Um, but what he's saying in this soliloquy is, um, is that like, he wished it, he's, he's, he, he had just, he's just seen them act out some like, you know, um, some like, uh, you know, crowd pleaser play, this little mini play. And uh, and he's like, well, why does how is that actor bringing forth such like emotion and human uh, passion? And I can't do anything. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm uh, just a loser. And to go to what Catherine was saying, um, you know, for the for the theory cell uh, at a certain point, if you descend far enough. And I think, you know, some of us uh, probably know people like this. For the theory cell, uh, once he's descended far enough into um, his theory celldom, the only uh, the only you know uh, conduit for action is theatricality, is like on on a stage. And if you want to do something in the real world, uh, in when you're when you're someone like that, you have to like be be pretending. You have to put on an antic disposition, just like Hamlet does, which is exactly what he does. The whole so, so, so I think this is exactly right, absolutely. And I think what he's saying in that soliloquy is that it's very easy to for the actor to to do it on stage and make and convince you that it's real, but it's much more difficult to do in real life. Um, so I'm just kind of concisely restating what you said. I totally agree. Bolingbroke, please, I've, I've been wanting to have you on for so long. So I'm very happy uh, to have you here. Please, you have the floor for as long as you'd like, sir. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Um, sorry, I, you took my hand down before I could. Um, so I just want to start in on... So I just reread the play because I, I was talking with a friend of mine about... Sorry about babbling children. I was oh, talking I, to a friend I have of the mine. Same problem, my friend. Do not worry here. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine about the play, and what the the main thing that I that I pulled from it from from the conversation we we're having is that Denmark doesn't really come up for Hamlet in almost any context throughout the entire play. Um, he says Denmark is a prison. He says. Um, he, he uses the, the word Dane a couple times, uh, he, but, but there's really, he doesn't have anything to say about Denmark. And so I looked into that and I pushed through it and I came to a similar conclusion to you, Astral, but the, the main thrust of my opinion is if Denmark was a hereditary monarchy and his father, <clears throat> excuse me, his father died his uncle is a usurper to the throne. 
And I think that that's underemphasized. I feel like when it's taught, the emphasis is his father came to him in a dream and then he knew he had to take revenge. No, he had was fully within his legal rights and within the rights of the church in their understanding of these things to go and unseat the usurper to the throne and his uncle who's also in sin. It's it's uh, it's debatable, but in his view, his uncle's in sin uh, in, in being in an incestuous relationship with his mother. And he could have gone and cut his uncle's head off and claim the throne over nothing else but to say, this is my throne, Dude, not his. thank you so much. This is why I said that he doesn't need to put this play on. He could have just called him out in front of everyone. That's Thank you very much. That is exactly what I was arguing. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't need anything. And the fact that his father appears points to the fact that he is not inclined to act. And there's the, I do think that the theology things come into it but maybe in a way we haven't thought of. Any Catholics in the room are aware that there's a very particular relationship between the Mass, the, the, the saying of the Mass, and purgatory. His father's in purgatory. If, if Hamlet is such a believer as he pretends to be, should he not have immediately left that place and bef- either before killing his uncle or after, walked to the cathedral and started trying to pray his father out of purgatory? It doesn't get his father out of purgatory to send his uncle to hell. That's not how it works. How it works is he prays his father out of purgatory in mass. He should have been contemplative and religious and said his prayers, but he didn't even do that. He just like futzed about and wandered around and and he's an embarrassment. I mean, this is something else I realized for the first time in this play. There were people who were doubting this. I'll, I'll make my full, I'll make my full point of this real quick in the group chat. There's people doubting this, but he says that he knew Yorick 23 years before. He says that himself. And then he's talking to the gravedigger, and the gravedigger says, I've been doing this ever since King Hamlet first killed Fortinbras Sr. And, okay, maybe that's not exactly true, but then he claims he's been doing it for 30 years and that Fortinbras Sr. was killed on the day that younger Hamlet was born. Um, if we just go off of Hamlet saying he knew, uh, knew Yorick 23 years before, presumably he is like seven years old. The way he's recounting these memories, kissing him and riding on his back and telling silly stories with him, you're not going to have really distinct memories of that if you're a very young child. And so all this is to say he's 30 years old. He's not like a little boy. He's not a teenager as he's often shown to be in, in the way that people sort of present him. His brooding and his indecision and his focus on these ancillary details are an embarrassment to his own character. Um, and, and I really do just want to say above all else, he could have walked up to the king the moment he landed on Denmark, cut his head off, and turned to the people and said, this is my throne, not his. And no one could have gainsaid him. Uh, and in fact, the king notes the reason why he doesn't kill Hamlet. There's, there's two reasons. He's guilty, and he has a guilty conscience, so he doesn't want that on his conscience. Uh and then his mother, uh, Hamlet's mother, plays into that as well. But then the real reason that he doesn't do it, at least that he tells Laertes, is because Hamlet is popular with the people. And so Hamlet could have shown up without any vision of his father, without any of that nonsense, and just killed Claudius and taken the throne. Um, one last point. Laertes says to Ophelia, Ophelia is talking to him, and she's like, well, you know, Hamlet, he's been saying he loves me. Laertes says, well, he's just been saying that. 
his mind is not his own. His decisions are not his own. Everything he does must be for Denmark. But we have to ask ourselves, is anything that Hamlet does ever in any part of the play for Denmark? What, what he accomplishes in this play politically is suicide, killing the, the crown king, and uh, I mean, he's a usurper, but he still kills him. And then his last act is to take the crown away from his family forever by giving it to Fortinbras. He's, he's not a political man and he doesn't understand all these political things. And if he did, even if he were the Christian he said he were, uh, which if, if he is Catholic, uh, perhaps he's not the Christian he says he is. But if he were, he would still have been able to take the crown, but he didn't want to. And so, so I don't know, I don't know exactly how to square that. I don't know, I don't know exactly how that goes with it. But I just, I find the the political aspect of this is overlooked, and it 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 really does shed light on it, in my opinion. These these are fantastic comments. I'm, uh, I couldn't agree more. And I want to say that these are the reasons that I never liked. Hamlet, the character. I've always appreciated the play. I think it's one of the greatest works of literature of all time, easily. I don't think that's arguable. But I never liked him, the character. I read it twice. I saw the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, London theater performance of it in New York. They had it on satellite. And I just don't like Hamlet. However, I want to say I watched the Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh uh, rendition of this, which is like four and a half hours long. I've watched it twice in the last week. It's the best performance I've seen of it. It's the only time I liked the character of Hamlet. And I tried, I struggled mightily not to be taken away by his performance and not to be taken away by his uh, rendition of the play because I liked it so much to lose sight of everything you just said because I was very sympathetic to Hamlet uh, with the way he performed it. Um, even though he's still like a He's a little bitch, basically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what I think. I think he wanted to... What did he want to do? Did he want the crown? I don't think so. Did, what did he want to do instead? I think he wanted to be a theory-selling uh, theater player.